series on the power of the word. If, if you are a guest and you go, man, I'm coming in at the end, good news. They're all archived on, on uh, I almost just said, I've been working so hard on the North American Mission stuff. I almost just said MissouriNam.com. No, they are on RefugeChurchOnline.com. And uh, you'll find all the archived messages, all of the messages, but especially the first two from this series, as this is the third and final one. But um, it's expedient to look, when we look at the power of the word, to look at how we got the word. We took different approaches each week. Well, tonight we're going to look at how we, we got the word. Um, how do you know if the Bible that you hold in your hand or that you read on the app or you look at it online, how do you know that that's right? How do you know that that was inspired? How do you know somebody didn't change it? How do you know, how, what, what, what did the transmission, the translation process look like? People say, well, trust the word. Well, what word? How do you know? And so, um, where did the books come from? Who wrote them? How did we get the information? So we're going to look at a, this a little bit. I know what I just said right now, you can take a full year of school to go into. So I'm never going to be able to do the whole thing justice. And I can't do 11-week series because I know I'll lose you and you'll get bored eventually. So we'll just do our best to see what we can get through in one night. And I promise you I'll be done by 1030. Um, so... Just kidding. Guests are like, what did I just come to? Oh, my goodness. And with that, our online audience just dropped by 400. No, I'm just kidding. So you may have heard someone maybe to refer to the Bible at some point as the canon. Uh, now, that's one end, not two. That's not a canon like Civil War or anything like that. It's, it's not a weapon. It's a spiritual or a theological term. The term canon is used to describe the list of books approved for inclusion in the Bible. It stems from a Greek word meaning rod, as in a straight stick that's used for, for measuring, for, for holding it against something, measuring, making sure that it fits the measurement, the measurement up to par. And so, hence to speak of the biblical canon is to speak of authoritative books given by God, the teachings that, that define correct belief and practice. Obviously, only books inspired by God should be viewed as canonical because the Bible you possess, most likely, and maybe we have some different Bibles, but typically what you'll find in a Protestant-type Bible is, and if you see now, you know Protestant. We talked about that all last week in case you missed that. But uh, it likely includes 39 books of the Old Testament, 39 books. Uh, and so these questions, when you look at who wrote them and what were their sources for information, because think about it. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. Let me tell you the creation story. Well, who was all there for the creation? No one that we know of. Adam comes after everything else. So who wrote about that and where'd they get the information? And so we should be able to just kind of educate ourselves on that because these are things that people, when they try to belittle scripture, these are things they're going to try to say to you. And so you don't want to just be like, faith, 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 because faith is incredibly powerful because you can go that route with somebody because you can say well who was there yes but fossils pointed that but who defined fossils who came up with the idea who who had the authority to say well this is this well that's science okay but where did science come from you can begin to push back too because ultimately there was no one there so you can't prove you can't prove god you can't prove science as far as the way that 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 oh it's, it stems from everything in the beginning well nobody was there in the beginning so at some point you put your faith in something you put your faith in science you put your faith in god i'm of the belief that you don't have to choose one or the other 
I'm of the belief that I believe in science, and I believe science points to God. And so, um, these, these are things that we look at. So my goal tonight is to leave you with a little more confidence in Old Testament books and thus in the Bible itself. When you look at the sources for the earliest histories, uh, Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are referred to as primeval history because they cover events that take us back to the shadows of time, all the way back to the beginning. Uh, Genesis 11 kind of picks up with, uh, with the Tower of Babel and God changing the languages and things. But then after that, you get into a, a patriarchal history because 12 on through, through the end of Genesis is where you get into Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so from the creation of the world to Joseph's establishment in Egypt, all the events retold in Genesis, they occurred long before Moses was born. But yet most people say Moses is the one that wrote the first five books of the Bible that are known as the Pentateuch. Penta means five, that first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so uh, this is significant because the Bible in, 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 in longstanding tradition is Moses wrote it. So most likely he composed them between 1440 and 1400 B.C. And so if back then B.C., it was, it was, you were working downward to zero A.D., and then you moved to where we are in 2023. And so, uh, well, if he wrote them in 1440 to 1400 BC, that's interesting. He, he didn't see it all transpire. So many events in Exodus through Deuteronomy coincided with Moses' lifetime. So he authored these largely as, I, as an eyewitness. He could say, and I saw this, and we did this, and they came down the mountain, and we had the Ten Commandments, and we had the Ark, and we had the, like he, the Ark of the Covenant. He could go through these things but not necessarily Genesis. <clears throat> so, how did Moses know details about events and people that preceded him by many centuries? Well, some suggest Moses knew the ancient histories because God revealed them to him supernaturally. In this scenario, God's inspiration of Moses would include God supplying Moses with all of the dates, the historical details, the places, the times, even the conversations, information that Moses would never have known without God telling him. Now, this possibility, it cannot be ruled out. God is big enough. God could literally say, you weren't there, but write down this date, write down, here's what the conversation looked like, write this down. He just penned everything that God supernaturally gave him. Absolutely can happen, and that, that cannot be ruled out, because God's capable of working such miracles. However, careful analysis reveals the Pentateuch nowhere, not any of those first five books, nowhere hints that the historical narratives were given to Moses by this manner. Don't you think that if God did that for you, you would have just slid that in somewhere? And, and yeah, and God spoke to me and woke me up uh, out of a dream. I, well, I was eating my Wheaties in the morning, and God came down, and he said, write these things down. We see that in other places of the Bible. Yeah. Write down the words that I tell you, and he told me, write down the things that I said in, in the book. We see that from John the Revelator. We see that from some of the, the prophets of the Old Testament. And I think in five different books, I would think Moses might have said, and God came to me supernaturally and said, write these things down. And so we don't read <clears throat> these things. Instead, the Genesis narratives about Abraham and other historical figures read like straightforward accounts that had been handed down in the usual way. And the usual way is the common thread that we have always found 
throughout Jewish history. Through oral and written records, with oral records presumably originating soon after the events occurred. And so Adam, he, he's, he's there, and I created this, and I gave you dominion. And so Adam would have known these things, and he has kids, and they have kids. And Jew, Jewish, Jewish people to this day are very, very strong in oral and written tradition and handing things down. And so in this case, we would add that God superintended the transmission of the early oral and written accounts so that Moses received reliable histories worthy of inclusion in the book of Genesis. God's hand was upon this information. It was carefully passed down from generation to generation. And to this day, Jewish people still place a ton of emphasis on strong written and oral records. Now, Moses possibly use such, such sources when we hear this and we go well this is surprising no there's no way as if me saying this somehow removes God from the equation that does not remove God from the equation God superintended this whole process okay so God by, by God saying and, and these were handed down and these people kept records who handed it to them and who handed it to them and I got it to Moses and Moses was was told to put these things in a book that doesn't mean that God somehow now is not supernatural and so you look at this and, and people often assume the Bible is the product of divine dictation but it's more accurate in my opinion to view the Bible as a composition as having both supernatural and natural qualities this is the way God still chooses to do things today I will stand here in this pulpit and give you supernatural words from God that he's given me through prayer and fasting and study of the word. And I feel like he leads me to a passage and says, this is what I want to say to my church on this Sunday. And sometimes I've even had people go, you know, I don't appreciate you said something about my business over the pulpit. And I'm like, listen, can I tell you something? We met on Friday and this message was prepared for three and a half weeks. Okay, and so sometimes God will do things supernaturally, but I'm still a natural human being. There is still study. There is still me reading scripture. There's still me diving into things and, and, and putting a thought together, but that thought is supernaturally led by God. And so God has always chosen to go, I'm going to give you the supernatural, but I'm going to choose to use natural men and women. And so could God have recorded it himself and kept the original manuscripts in a safe place that we could all go look at today? Thousand percent, yes. But he didn't do that. And so what we have is copies of manuscripts of manuscripts that he's preserved because to this day he still has chosen to go, I could do it myself, but I've always chosen to use imperfect humans to pass on supernatural things. And so the model that I'm talking about is Luke 1, 1 to 4. We, we, we read, I mean, I, we believe in the, the book of Luke, the book of Acts. Luke wrote both of those books, but look how he starts off. And a lot of times people call him Luke Acts, like one book. And so Luke 1, verse 1 says, Luke writes, he says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, 
So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So here's Luke saying, hey, we've been gathering information from all the people who were there, and they saw it. But I didn't just take it at face value. I researched it to make sure that it was correct. And I can assure you what I'm writing down here is absolutely correct. Now, God is absolutely involved in this process, but God did not say, Luke, write down the following seven words. But was God leading this? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. But there was still this supernatural and natural coming together. And so, a similar example is found in Numbers Numbers 21.14, where a quote is lifted from a now-lost book entitled The Book of the Lord's Wars. The Book of the Lord's Wars is not an inspired book. It's not in the canon. We find Jude. He will keep quotes, too, from the Book of Enoch, which now is inspired, not in the canon. But that just goes to show they were reading outside sources, and they would say, kind of like on Sunday, I'm going to get up and I'm going to say, here's some statistics from things that are going on. And that's, that doesn't now mean that those are supernatural statistics. It's that I was reading, and this goes to prove a supernatural point out of the Scripture, out of God's Word. And so, from these examples, we can see that biblical writers were free to draw reliable historical data from non-biblical sources. Thus, it seems Moses was able to write about historical events that occurred long before his his birth by drawing on information from pre-existing sources, all while allowing God's Spirit to lead and guide the whole process. Now, how did these written sources come down to Moses? Well, for the primeval history, it's reasonable to suggest that from earliest times, people passed down carefully preserved oral accounts with key events and significant persons. Think about yourself right now. How many of you have somewhere in your home pictures from generations prior to you? Anyone got any pictures from generations prior to you? Okay. Well, chances are you might, you have never been there. But you could say, that was my great-great-grandma. They came over from here, and they used to live in this country, and their names were so-and-so. That's their wedding picture. They got married. They used to live in this city. That was a house that they bought. That was my great-grandpa's car that he gave to my, my grandpa. My grandpa used to drive that around, and you weren't there. But you know the stories. Now they make it pretty easy because you just jump on and find out your family tree and People start bragging about people who their second cousin, third removed from the fourth generation. They're like, somewhere along the line, I was related. It doesn't work. We went to the Ark Encounter, and I embarrassed my wife because they told me I tried it at the parking counter. I tried it at the, I tried it at the, the front desk where you bought the admission for the, for the Ark itself. And I said, hey, is there a discount? And they said, a discount for what? And I said, I'm related to Noah. (laughs) And the first person, Chad was actually the one that told me to try this, and I listened, so um, I don't know if he ever tried it, but he told me to. And so so the first lady at the parking, she just kind of looked at me. The lady at the admission place I don't remember what she said, but the lady I bought a hot chocolate from said, "Uh, I guess if you can prove it. And I said, well, do you believe the Bible? I mean, 
And so then my wife was running away, and I just stopped. So it's always an adventure, I guess, to be married. It's not always fun, but it's an adventure to be married to me. Um, but so think about this. You know, you, you've done this without even focusing, putting great attention to your family tree, your name, your lineage, what you've been handed down. Imagine if it was a thing in your family, in your culture, whatever, that said, we have to make sure this is so crucial. Make sure you never lose this. This is important. This is going to tell you who was who. That's why you, you fly through the Old Testament, the Old Testament Toledoths, as they call them. That they're, they're, there's like 11 of them in the Old Testament. Those are things we're just like, whatever, I'm not going to pay attention to that. And this begat so, and they begat so, and begat so, and they lived to be 200 some, 400 some, 500 some. They lived this many, that's many kids that they had. I don't care. You're like, I just got to check the box and get through my bread rating. But, but that's all crucial because it shows... Someone carefully didn't just get up on a whim that day and be like, you know what, I'm frustrated today, I'm going to speak against Christianity. Like, no, they were like, okay, this is the history. These people were born. They begat these people. They started here. And then it's incredible because, I don't have time to go into it, but you can look and you will find ancient Egyptian culture, civilization, things that they found in unearthed and archaeology that actually point to the names, dates, facts, and figures of ancient biblical writing. So it's not just, when you read the Bible, you're not just going, you just got to have faith. Yes, you have to have faith. Without faith, you can't please God. Scripture says that. But it's not a blind faith. There, is, there are things that point to the fact this book is real, powerful, alive, true, historically accurate. And so when elementary writing arose, many of these things would have been committed now to writing. The, the transfer to written format may have happened earlier than is even commonly supposed because rudimentary uh, alphabets are known to have circulated in the early 2nd millennium B.C., and with the discovery of the Palermo stone, and he, see, see, you thought Palermo was just a frozen pizza, but there's a Palermo stone. Was that, that, is that around here? That was in Wisconsin. They had a frozen pizza called Palermo. No? You do have that? Okay. I have at least two people that are backing. Three people, thank you. Okay, thank you. Everybody was just falling asleep, but now they're awake, they're good, we're together. Palermo pizza. I can't even remember if it's good or not, but... It's a frozen pizza. But Palermo Stone, we have solid evidence, again, that I just referenced. The Egyptians wrote detailed historical records and hieroglyphic text at least as far back as 2600 B.C. Well, that time, is, that predates Moses by over 1,100 years. So we have writing, even if it's hieroglyphics, there is a historical evidence that people re were recording some type of information. This stuff, I love this stuff. Some of you, if you love history, you're like, this is great. If you don't, come back next week, we're going to get better. Because I know, like my daughter's like, the minute you mention history, when I go on vacation, I'll be like, guys, there's this museum. At one point, my kids on our last vacation were like, dad, please, I'm begging you, don't take us to another museum. And I'm like, ugh. Oh. 
and, and, and I want to go to a Refuge Church Israel trip. And uh, part of the reason we can't go yet, see, that's awesome. If we get at least 50 of us, we get our own tour bus, it's amazing. It's, it's incredible. But um, my kids need to be able to come because we're gone out of the country for a lot of days, and they're not ready for it yet. So just pray for their minds, and then we can, we can just... I'll try to go sooner. But the rich details inscribed on the Palermo stone reach back in the very dawn of Egypt. It names kings from 3100 B.C. and even earlier. You're going back so incredibly early in human existence. The rich details there, uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. But they survived long enough to bequeath vital facts to later societies who learned to write histories in more permanent formats. And so some of the greatest modern archaeological digs have uncovered ancient non-biblical texts that resemble the biblical accounts for Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel. These texts were from 1600 B.C. and earlier, and in broad strokes, they, they, they go right along with Genesis. The, the, their points of departure from Genesis may reflect corruptions that slipped in as the cultures went further and further away from God. By contrast, people who kept a, alive a faith like Noah's, they preserved stories uncorrupted, and it is these accounts that came down to men like Moses and even future generations. As far as the patriarchal histories, it goes without saying that men such as Abraham would pass down close accounts of remarkable experiences with God. Why? Because when God says, get thee out of your country, out of your father's house, and he's like, yeah, my dad died, and then boom, this happened, and he calls me, and, and I was supposed to leave, and I remember when we all left with the whole family, we left, or we went over here, and then we, there was a famine, we had to go to Egypt, and man, I was freaked out, because they, my wife was so gorgeous, and, and so I wanted to go there, and, but then I was afraid Pharaoh, he was going to kill me and take her, so I told her to say, just you're, say you're my sister, and that's what's beautiful, is because it was like these accounts and it wasn't just the high points. If I was writing my own story, I'd probably leave out some of the negative stuff and just focus on the stuff I did well. <laughs> It'd be a shorter book too, right? But, but no, it was, it was, these were the things that it, it gathered all of this information and it was preserved for someone to pen, to write it down. And so uh, <clears throat> it's, it's, it goes without saying. That, that, that men like Abraham would have, would have kept these things. And somewhere down the line, Abraham's descendants began writing these things down. This may have begun most earnestly, I would say, even with someone like Joseph, the son of Israel who became a great political figure in Egypt. And so writing was a very old art in Egypt, as I just referenced. They had written accounts as early as 3100 B.C., so when Abraham has Isaac and Jacob and Jacob has the sons of Israel and, and, and Joseph's born and sold into slavery, we look at that and we're like, wow, what a terrible story. His brothers let him down. They stabbed him back, sold him to slavery. He went through all this stuff. His own brothers let him down. And then he's, he, he's lied on by Potiphar's wife and he's put back in the, in the prison. And then, but God then elevates him. What a powerful story. And we think about the, the theology in that. And we preach forgiveness to his brothers. And we preach how God has a plan. We preach all these incredible things that Joseph Kimber preached a thousand different ways. But do you ever stop and think, wow, God, in spite of, in, not, in addition to all that, could you have done all this 
simply to get Joseph to the most educated society in human history at that time. To teach him. Because he would have learned how to record information when he had these dreams. It wasn't just about food and provision, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. In order to be the leader, he had to have learned how to keep incredible records about what are we rationing? Who's getting it? How are we saving it? Where are we storing it? How are we going to pass it on? How are we going to keep track of what we have and who's gotten what already? And now he goes, hey, and by the way, Grandpa Abraham and Grandpa Isaac, great-grandpa Abraham and the stories that he was given, that he would have received the education, the know-how, how to how to gather all of the important facts and figures from human history. That I go, wow, God didn't just have him in Egypt probably just for the food. He was a key component, most likely. And again, I, I, it, Scripture doesn't say, it doesn't speak these. I'm just letting you kind of see the way that the word would have been passed. Is this educated man that was in the most popular, most uh, uh, powerful an educated society in human history at that point could have most likely been the one that's recording all of this information. And so a chief bearer of Abraham's lineage, he would have known. When Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, he assured them, I've forgiven you for all that you've done. He says in Genesis 50, what you intended to harm me, God intended it all for good. He brought this, me to this position so I could save the lives of many. And I go, wow, when we read scripture, we, the book of Isaiah prophesies about a coming savior, but it was also talking about that moment. It was also talking about that moment in Israel's history, but it still pointed to something later. And here, certainly, there are people in his family, his immediate family in that day and age that were saved because of what God did to elevate him that position. But I would say just like that, you fast forward, and I believe in 2023, there are still people being saved as a result. Because why? Because there's no doubt in my mind that the written word being a, a, a key person in the lineage of Abraham. And when they reunited in Egypt, there were 70 of them all together. That he most likely was the key recorder, the person that was gathering information that could be passed down from generation to generation. Well, who wrote the books and when? The Old Testament books do not have copyright dates on them, and a few of them explicitly, very few explicitly just say, yeah, hey, and a few of them do, but this, I'm the author. I wrote this. And so, uh, nevertheless, by the aid of biblical testimony, Jewish history, we know the approximate time that the books were composed. We know in many cases the author, who, who that author was, or the, who was chiefly uh, responsible for the content. For thousands of years now, scholarly people of faith have studied the matter and have concluded that the Old Testament books and their earliest recipients have reliably portrayed the authorship and dates of the sacred writings. Yet today, you'll still come across critics, people who will say the books were written many hundreds of years after the dates and the authors that they, that they originally ascribed to them. For instance, it's claimed that the Pentateuch was actually, it was nearly a thousand years after Moses. There's no way Moses could have wrote that. Look at the words, look at the verbiage. It was probably a thousand years after the time of Moses. And so if they can raise doubts in Christians about whether they can even trust their sacred book of faith, 
That's, that's, uh, to me, that's an attack of the enemy because if you can't trust the divinely inspired book that's infallible, inerrant, then what are you going to preach? What do you stand on? And so people in this extreme version, this theory says men such as Moses and Abraham, they go as far as to say they never existed. You ever come across anybody that says Moses and Abraham, they never existed? That's folklore. That's, that's, not, the, that's not the case. They and their histories were allegedly invented by priests who sought to provide hope-inspiring stories during the tough times when they were exiled in the land of Babylon. So once they got exiled, because we can prove some of these things, that happened. But Abraham, Moses, those guys didn't exist. They were, they were, that's folklore. They were written up just so they would encourage the Israelites. They would encourage the Jewish people when they were in, in exile. Well, such theories are chiefly built on the slim supports of a couple things. Number one, skepticism, which presupposes that God does not exist or that his book is a human book. Number two, the occasional uh, anachronisms scattered throughout the early portions of the Old Testament. Skepticism itself is a faith, by the way. Ironically, skeptics who insist we should form beliefs only on the basis of evidence often contradict their own mantra. But what about the anachronisms that I just referenced? Well, if you don't know what that is, that's something found in one era that seemingly fits in a different era, and thus it's deemed out of place. And so even today, you'll see fashion and lingo and music and, and things like, well, that, you could, I could turn on a song right now, and you'd be like, there's 90s, there's 80s, there's 70s, because it, it, things kind of tend to go in an era. And so when someone reads scripture, they'll be like, that was not, if you know yourself, that was not the 1400s BC, that would have been much earlier, that was later, and, and that's where they get this argument. And so this radical theory is firmly against evidence, though, because they say, well, this is proof that the books and all their stories originated much later, and that priests who invented these stories occasionally slipped up, and they put contemporary names in ancient settings, or they just made it up altogether. Well, in reality, the early Old Testament books consistently bear the mark of ancient contexts that suit times long before Israel even arose. For instance, the laws, customs, and political situations described in the, in the Pentateuch, it naturally fit with the second millennium B.C. and earlier. This is proven by the discovery of many non-biblical texts and artifacts of that, area, of that era. Uh, one of the most exciting things that we did was go through the Jewish Museum in Israel where they actually had like things that they, they found a, a heel bone with a nail through it uh, that showed that crucifixion was absolutely a thing in, by, in, that, in that time where Jesus would have been crucified. I can't say they found Jesus' heel <laughs> because he was risen anyway. Um, but you, they, they found a heel with a, with a nail through it, and they found an incredibly early reference to King David, a David, an Israelite king. I mean, things that are just absolutely incredible that archaeology and, and even science will point to. And so it's unlikely that unethical priests a thousand years or more removed from historical situations described the Pentateuch and tried to purposely veer people off. Also, the concerns that dominated the Hebrew mindset during the Babylonian exile are not addressed by the Pentateuch. 
So if you're in Babylon exile, Babylonian exile, you don't really care that God spoke the world into existence or there was a Tower of Babel. If an unethical priest was trying to change something or make something up, don't you think he would have kind of addressed your situation where you were? And so it's unimaginable that the mass of Hebrews would fall for such a ruse to choose to base their entire worldview on false histories that were put together by inventive clergymen. And then succeed in selling this hoax to their children and children's children's and children's children's for generations to come. What takes more faith? So, what about the anachronism, stuff that's in a different period? Well, simply this. And the years after the Pentateuch, uh, after it was written, inevitable changes took place in names, vocabulary, political situations, even made the books hard to comprehend. And so to alleviate this problem, a priestly guardians of the sacred oracles updated the text to key junctures to reflect uh, different changes in word usage or geopolitical situations such as, and I'll give you biblical, this is not just all my theory, this is biblical. Look at Judges chapter 1 verse 10. It says, and Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba. And they slew Shishai and Amen and Talmai. And he, so he goes through. But notice that he says, hey, well, look at that. Human error, they changed something that was originally wrote down. Well, if what was originally wrote down doesn't even exist anymore, I would appreciate if somebody would say, that's this place. By the way, it used to be called that. So to me, that does not point, I don't lose any faith or confidence in Scripture because someone updated it with the new name of the city. 1 Samuel 9, 9, before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus spake, come and let us go to the seer, for he is one that's now called a prophet. But that, that's what he used to be called back then. Hey, I'm thankful for that. Don't use words that don't even exist, mean nothing to me anymore. And that's why today, sometimes people still will use King James only. That's awesome. It's a wonderful translation. But it was translated in 1611. Language has changed since 1611. So as long as it's still a good translation that focuses on the translation process and word-to-word equivalents, I don't have a problem with certain translations that say, okay, I'm going to come and bring it to a contemporary English perspective because language has changed. It's dynamic. Now, I wouldn't say use the message where they're like, he walked up and said, what's up, man? How's it going? Let's go down. Like, no, that, that, that's kind of just a general thought. I want to stick to the translation of the actual verbiage and the meaning. And so the Bible, this does not mean, anything I'm telling you, it does not mean the Bible's not inspired. It means that there were updates made as nations became extinct, practices changed, language evolved. The process would have been undertaken soberly by taking a great deal of care to preserve the meaning and the intention of the holy text. Thus, under strict guidelines and the books underwent helpful editing with the result that the text remained accessible with the passage of time. And so think about it, and I'm not going to be much longer, but the Bible was not originally written with chapters and verses. So you can look and say, well, bless God, somebody done added. They, 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 they changed what was written down. And I can go, thank God they did. Imagine me preaching. Okay, you guys are going to have to go about 16 pages in. 
It's about halfway down the page, and we're going to try and read this today. It's much easier to go, yeah, Exodus chapter 4, verse 13. You know, we can, we can begin to move. Why? That doesn't change. They just broke it up to where, oh, hey, now it can flow. Now we can actually find things in an easier manner. And so scribes were integral to that day and age. Virtually all the scribes who ever touched the sacred scrolls did so not only to read them, but to copy them word for word. Could you imagine being paid to do that and just sit in this unheated room in the desert and you just have to work and just trans- just copy word for word? Literary copying was important skill in the ancient world since there were no means of rapid duplication. We didn't have, like, hey, run, run the Xerox, run that, take this down to the FedEx store, have them make a copy for you. We didn't have that. So scribes were important in believing that writings in their care were authoritative, inspired by God. Hebrew scribes took exceptional care when copying the scrolls. We can be confident in the traditional beliefs about the date and the authorship of the Old Testament books. We can also rest assured that the books were carefully copied and preserved, and all editorial updates of the books were done in a strictly conservative fashion, not to change the meaning. Do we have the right books? The 39 books of our Old Testament, really the ones that God meant for us to revere. Well, the first step to answering that question is to address the issue of collection. Who was it that originally collected the sacred writings together? Solid evidence indicates that the priests undertook this duty. In Deuteronomy 31, 24 to 26, Moses commanded that the book of the law be stored in the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments were stored. He, read and he says, and it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of the law in a book. There again, internal evidence that Scripture's telling us this is what happened until they were finished. Moses commanded the Levites, the priests, that which were bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, he said, take this book of law and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and it may be there for a witness against thee. So even then, he was writing these things going, I'm giving you authoritative, as, 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 as a priest, this is going to be your job, but we need to keep it in a safe place. We have to make sure that this is preserved. It was not just written for that day. There was an intention there. And so this put Moses' writings at the very center of Jewish religious life. So further in Deuteronomy 4.2, we read the command to preserve the commandments of God faithfully. He said, you shall not add or take away from anything that I give. Don't. He says that you keep the commandments of the Lord God that I gave you. And so again, there was, here's what was given. We need to focus on this. This has to be the center of our lives. And so these passages indicate that the priests were to keep charge of God's written revelation. And these were to be safeguarded against perversion. Since Moses was the writer of the earliest biblical books, and since Moses himself charged the priests with the duties of storing and protecting God's words, the high value of identifying, collecting, and protecting the sacred writings was established when the Pentateuch originated. This was not something that somebody just thought about later and say, where were those books he wrote? Oh, man, I can't find them. You know, like you set something around your house, and you're like, kids, where did you put this stuff? He didn't know. Moses was like, I just got done writing these. I'm giving this to you. Put it in the Ark of the Covenant, which is the safest place because you wouldn't grab that and you weren't a part of them. You'd die anyway. So it's a really good place to put it. And so when the other prophets and holy men in Israel subsequent to Moses were given revelation by God, their teachings, whether written or by, by them or close associates, would have been gathered quickly 
by the community of the faithful. At, at some point later, the books came to be stored at the Jer- Jerusalem temple. And we know this in, in a time of national backsliding because Second Kings talks about how Hilkiah, the high priest, said, go get the books. And they found them in the temple and they, they had dust on them and he had brought them out and he read them. So even then we see this historical account of they were still around and they were still stored in a safe place. As much uh, a, a much later time in history, the books were still kept in there for a reputable and well-known Jewish historian named Josephus. And he received the scriptures from his Roman benefactors who ransacked the temple in A.D. 70. And so we, we, we've seen that the Jews identified, collected, and preserved the sacred writings as a matter of course. Next, we ask, though, if, if, if or when they believed the production of the writings had ceased. Well, Josephus is, is helpful for clarifying this matter. He tells us in his uh, writing against Apion, he says that the Jews widely recognized that the succession of the prophets ended in time of Artaxerxes when latter prophets such as Haggai and Malachi felt, fell silent with no successors. Now, in some Bibles, you'll find this intertestamental period where you get the book of Maccabees and things like that that are in some Bibles. But in Protestant religion, you will see that most people will say, we do not, I think this is good. Read the book. It's got a good information, good historical information, but it's not part of inspired text. It was written after this time, and Josephus, and you write about the books, we never see reference from Jesus in the New Testament because what we have there's a reason why it's that, those 39 books and 27 in the New Testament. And though we divide them into the 39 books rather than 22 or 24, the Protestant canon is identical to those books who were safeguarded in the temple by Christ. The two most significant religious bodies in Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both accepted this body of book, books as the canon of Scripture. Following Jesus' example, Early Christians adopted the Jewish consensus of the Old Testament canon. During his ministry, Jesus showed that he was in line with standard Jewish assessment of the canon by quoting from all three divisions of the Old Testament. In, 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 in Hebrew, it would be Torah, Navim, Ketuvim, and we translate that as law, prophets, writings. And during his ministry, he quotes from all three divisions, law, prophets, and writings which if Jesus is quoting and saying it's the word, I'm pretty confident saying it's also the word. Furthermore, Jesus demonstrated that the Old Testament included many prophecies and veiled allusions to himself as the Messiah. Thus, Christians learned to read the Jewish holy books to seeing Jesus in them because he was constantly referencing back to them, which tells me not only did he view them as inspired, but he was wanting them to go study them. In fact, for the first few decades of the church, the majority of the Christians, when they preached, they, they couldn't, Peter couldn't get up and go like, all right, hey, we got to go to Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians. They were living these things. Like, they didn't have a New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. And, and, and that's what they spoke from. Remember, Hebrew was the language of the Old Testament. Greek was the language of the New Testament. Eventually, to allow for the Greek-speaking believers to read the Old Testament, they translated it, and that was called the Septuagint. It's the Greek version of the Old Testament because Alexander the Great had conquered, and so that was now the, the, the Hellenistic Greek. That was the language. 
And so they were like, okay, well, we're losing language Hebrew. We got, we got, to, we got to get this in to, to the people that are now not speaking this, reading this. And so they translated the Old Testament into Greek and called it the Septuagint. Some New Testament writings have allusions to materials outside. I said Jude quotes from First Enoch, and Jesus quotes Proverbs and Maxims that were during his day. Paul quotes Greek poets. By doing so, they don't imply that these poets or philosophers were now somehow inspired text. They were just referencing things in their day, just like I would stand up and reference something. Hey, look at the, did you see the news? This is, and, then, and then tie it into divinely inspired scripture. And so, hopefully that has been, if you're still awake, at the very least, you might not be able to regurgitate all that information, but I want you to walk out of here going, people ain't going to mess with my Bible. Scripture has withstood the test of time. As one person said, it's the anvil that's worn out many hammers. People have gone down this road and tried to say it's changed, it's written by men, it's not divinely inspired. It's, uh, people have tried this for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I went a little deeper than I normally would uh, on a Wednesday or any time in this pulpit, really. But I want you to be able to look at this and go, there's depth here. It's not just trust the word. By faith, we need to believe the word that's preaching. Tonight was some deep teaching. But you can walk out going, no, I can stand on this. I can stand wholeheartedly, stand on this word. It's a foundation. And so we have solid reasons for believing that the Old Testament books include only true history. They were written by men who were appointed by God to deliver spirit-inspired writings to humanity. And God has preserved them for our day. And as I read about the lives of Joseph and Moses, I see God's hand not only on the Jewish nation, but I also see his plan unfolding to have a written and an inspired text, one that would live beyond their generation, survive the test of time. And preachers like myself could get up on Sundays all over the world and preach from Old Testament, New Testament principles and themes and truths that will still change and impact lives thousands and thousands of years later. And I'm thankful for that. Would you stand to your feet and let's close in prayer tonight. Jesus, we love you, God. You are so absolutely incredible. And God, I am thrilled that we have your word. I am so thankful to you that we don't just have to try to believe in you and get through this life without having any guidance, but that you looked at through the sands of time and you knew that your people were always going to need to have divinely inspired text that would at times rebuke us, correct us, encourage us, challenge us, change us, instruct us. God, that every principle of life that we will ever face is found in your word. God, it might not address things exactly like we would, it might deal with ter or terminologies we might use today, but the principles are there that will forever guide us and forever give us hope and strength and healing and salvation, God. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to have the, this book and to have it 
have it translated into languages that we know and that we can understand and that we can read and that you don't just have someone else read it for us. We get to read it and hold and study it and understand it ourselves, God. Thank you tonight for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.